0: Now, we continue together our exposition of Paul's epistle to the Romans by turning tonight to chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And you will remember that the Apostle Paul has already opened the gospel very fully in chapter 1 in two places. In the first chapter, in verses 2 through 4, in particular. And in the first chapter in verses 16 and 17, in which he makes it plain that the great theme of this epistle is the righteousness of God. And the epistle is focused, not exclusively, but in large measure, upon the question of how we can be right with God. How are we justified in the presence of an altogether holy and righteous God? In chapter 1, after these verses, beginning at verse 18, the Apostle Paul, in that lengthy section we spent two weeks there, deals with especially the Gentile world and the total depravity of man. And tonight, we will see that he turns his attention in particular to the Jew, we might say to the moral man. Let's pray before reading this passage. Oh, gracious God and Father, our hearts are full to think that uh, for eternity we will sing on and on and on of the great grace and mercy that has been shown to us in Christ our Lord when complete and utter joy will so fill our hearts that there will be no sadness for the Lamb himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. And as we come to this epistle, we thank you that through the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, the Holy Spirit has given to us your Word that tells us very clearly how we sinners can be saved from our sins. and As we work through it, week after week, we pray that we will understand more of the glory of the cross and that perhaps some who are here who do not know the Savior would have their hearts opened by sovereign free grace to see their need of the Redeemer, defined in Christ, their all-sufficient Savior. For We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Romans 2, beginning with verse 1, this is the Word of God. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, That you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for every one who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The Word of the Lord. What an awesome passage we have passed through in chapter 1, in which the Apostle Paul describes the depravity of the human race, and especially as seen in the Gentile world, three times repeating, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. Illustrating to us immediately the truth of verse 18, that the wrath of God is presently being revealed against all the godlessness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. These indeed are not pleasant thoughts, but they are true thoughts. And indeed, without these thoughts, we will never see our need of a Redeemer and our need of the Savior. The pleasant thought, the joyful thought, the wondrous thought of salvation cannot truly enter our souls until we have come to grips with what it means that we are sinners in need of a Redeemer. But what about the Jew? What about that man who believes he's following the law? who is zealous for the law, even as Paul himself was before his conversion, eager to be moral, zealous to be good. Well, the Apostle Paul says, pointing your neighbor to Romans 1, while you revel in works, will not do, because God is a just God, completely and utterly, and the sins of the moral man also are deserving of God's wrath. Indeed, our moral sins, as some of the old theologians used to say, are simply splendid sins. Moral righteousness of our own will not save us. What does Paul say then to moral people who do not see their need of the Savior? What does he say to the Jew who does not see his need of the Redeemer? What might he say to someone here tonight who is moral and yet lost, that person who believes that he is exempt from God's judgment because he was moral? And I know this speaks to some, I can testify that it speaks to my own heart because this is how I was brought up as well. I do not mean that I was not taught the truth about the righteousness of Christ and how a person is saved without works. I mean that I was brought up, rightly so, in a moral environment in which I was taught to be moral. Now that's a good thing, that's a right thing. But in my lostness, I trusted in that morality. And it was only when God the Holy Spirit showed me the condition of my heart that I came to understand that that morality was just a spider's web, that it could not hold me up, that it provided no covering on the day of God's wrath. And I will never forget as a child, 13 years old, having dreams about the judgment of God as I read the Bible, and the Holy Spirit working within my heart to show me that I, this moral young man, was lost and undone, and that my, my morality was simply not good enough. So, how does the Apostle Paul respond to the moral man who thinks his morality is good enough? Let me point out five things that the Apostle says to that person. First, he asks a question. Do you condemn others for what you do yourself? You see in verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you the judge practice the very same things. Well, what do you mean? What very same things? Well, they're the things that he's already enumerated in the Gentile world at the end of chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. Look at it. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now he says to the Jew, to that moral man who believes he can be saved by his goodness, you do the very same things. And he says you are without excuse. That should ring a bell. Because back in chapter 1, verse 20, he says that they are without excuse And now he says to the moral man in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse. So there you are. Uh, The depraved man in the gutter is without excuse. Uh, The moral man who believes he can be saved by his works will not be and he is without excuse because every moral man knows within his heart that he has broken the law of God. There is no man, strive though he may, to keep the law of God who is able to say that in its heart, in its essence, in its purity, in the spirituality of the law, I have kept the law of God. There is no man able to say that that he has not lusted in his heart. There is no one able to say that he has not had a a covetous heart. There is no one who is able to say that he has not broken the law of God within his heart. And so that's the first thing the Apostle Paul does. Now let me ask you this question. What does this show you about your heart and your heart's need before the Redeemer? Because you see, the judgment that we pass on others, look at that man in the gutter. Look at that man who is an alcoholic. Look at that man who is sexually depraved. Uh, The condemnation that we pass on another Shows that we are ourselves ignorant of our own spiritual condition, that we are ignorant of our own heart's condition. For if we knew the spirituality of the law, isn't this what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount? This is his whole point. You have heard that it was said, You shall not. Uh, commit adultery. I say unto you, any man who lusts after a woman in his heart has committed adultery with her already. Already in his heart, he has broken the law. He is holding up the perfection of the law, the inflexibility of the law. And so the Apostle Paul asks this great question. Do you condemn others for what you do yourself? And so I ask you that question now. Who of us hasn't done this? Do you do that? Do you look at this other person and say, look at what they do, and yet do not see the need of your own heart and your own soul? And then secondly, well, that was very kind of you, thank you. And then secondly, the Apostle Paul says this to the moral man, God's judgment is according to truth. God's judgment is according to truth. The Jew might well say, I have privileges that others do not have. And indeed, the Jew had many privileges. He was given the oracles of God. He had the covenant. He had the prophets. He had many privileges that others did not have. Nonetheless, as he says, I am a Jew, and thinks that that privilege will save him, again, he shows that his heart is far from the Lord. Now, there are many places to which we might turn in the Scriptures. Let me give you a couple to jot down in Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. In John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47, you find Jesus addressing the Jew, thinking that because they are children of Abraham, they will be saved. To translate this, of course, into modern language in our present state and present place, we would have someone who says, I'm a charter member of a church or I am from a Christian home, or I've gone to a Christian school, or I've been baptized, or I'm in a Christian community. Now, all of those things are rich and wonderful blessings. A true Christian should be a member of a local church. A true Christian should be baptized. Uh, A true Christian should have all of these wondrous privileges that are the result of the atoning work of the Savior. But none of these things redeem and none of these things justify God's piercing eye judges according to the real state of affairs. And so, he says in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Man judges by the appearance of things. God's judgment is infinitely removed from man's judgment by appearance, because God is the searcher of the hearts. It is vain to hope that God will use some other standard for me than truth when he has stated that he will judge according to truth. You know, God has never set aside his law in order to save us. Indeed, if we are to be saved, that law must be completely and utterly met. And that is what Christ did when he went to the cross to redeem us from our sins. So privilege does not (coughs) exempt us from the judgment. Privilege aggravates judgment if we do not come to faith in Christ. Do you understand that? So that that man or woman or child standing before God on the day of judgment, who can say, I've had all of these privileges, the saddest, saddest way to hell is down the aisle of a church or sitting in the pew of a church Sunday after Sunday and hearing the gospel and having its privileges and yet not knowing the Lord. God's judgment is according to truth. The Apostle Paul gives a third answer to that man who thinks that he is redeemed by what he does, and it's this answer, do not make God's goodness an excuse for your sin, because that's exactly what the Jew was doing Beginning in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." And so he speaks in verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God? God's goodness and kindness to you should lead you to repentance. But you make God's goodness an excuse for your sin. You say, oh, God is good to me, and therefore I can sin. That's antinomianism. It is sheer antinomianism. And the Apostle Paul condemns it everywhere. You've missed the point. Not presumption. But repentance is called for. The goodness of God should not lead you to presume upon the grace of God. It should lead you to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your redemption. Presuming upon God's goodness leads to hardness of heart. Those who say, I have these privileges and God will forgive, and the trajectory of his life is to is to take advantage of God's goodness that should lead him to repentance by thinking God is good, he'll forgive. God is gracious, he'll forgive. God is merciful, he will forgive. That man or woman or child will find his heart become harder and harder and harder. And it is from having such a heart that one, and it's a very arresting way that Paul puts it, he treasures up wrath. For the day of wrath. Now we tend to think of treasuring up something as something that's grand and good, but the Apostle Paul says you are actually storing up, treasuring up literally, wrath so that that wrath increases and grows until the day of judgment comes. That's what he says in verse 5. Because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Little by little, that man, that moral man, stores up more and more wrath against sin. Because even though it is true that any sin against God is deserving of his infinite displeasure, yet the scriptures are very plain to teach that there are variegations in judgment and that some sins are more heinous than others. God is good. He won't send me to hell. Have you ever heard that? That's what this man is saying. God is just and he will send lawbreakers to hell. I heard a well-known minister say, I don't know about those who have never heard Well, the Apostle Paul knows what will happen to those who have never heard the gospel. They have the law written upon their hearts. The work of the law is there. And they will be judged in the last day according to the light that they have. You see, Paul is making a case like a lawyer. And step by step, he shows the moral man that his morality will not do before the bar of God's justice. How does God's goodness affect you? When you think of God's goodness, when you think of His grace, when you think of His mercy, does it lead you to say, therefore, it's just a small thing when I sin? Or because God is good, therefore, I can live my life in a presumptuous manner. Therefore, it's okay if I deviate from the standard of God's law because He will pardon. Does it lead you there? Or, and this I think is a test of grace in the heart, When you think of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy, does it lead you to say, therefore, I don't want to sin against the one who is so good to me. I want to believe and I want to repent and I want to live my life for him. How does God's goodness affect you? Does it lead you to repentance or does it lead you to presumption? The Apostle Paul says a fourth thing to the moral man who thinks that he can be judged. Now, remember, Paul is addressing the moral lost man. He is not addressing the issue of the believer and how you will stand on the day of judgment. He is addressing the moral lost man. And he says, fourthly, you will be judged according to your works. What a relief, the moral man might say. (laughs) I will be judged according to my works. Maybe I can tip the balance. Well, not so fast, because verse 6 tells us the place of works in God's judgment, but not apart from heart inspection. We read in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. And we read on verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. formal knowledge without obedience formal knowledge without obedience demonstrates that we are not justified now hear me i did not say that your obedience justifies your obedience will never save you i said formal knowledge without an obedient heart nor do i mean perfection But formal knowledge without obedience in the heart shows that a man does not know Christ. Because you see, the law of God is inflexible and God shows no partiality in the judgment. Look again at verses 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor in immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So at the judgment then is the Apostle Paul saying, those who do good are those who are going to be justified and those who have not done good will not be justified." Well, I think we need, again, to remember the whole context of what Paul is saying by looking ahead at chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off, that is to say, better off than Gentiles who were lost? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under the power of sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what is Paul saying back here in chapter 2? He is saying this that grace without law is meaningless, and law without grace is powerless. He is showing that the law of God is inflexible as a standard, or to use the words of Charles Hodge, the question at God's bar will be, not whether a man is a Jew or a Gentile, whether he belongs to the chosen people or to the heathen world, but whether he has obeyed the law. That will be the question. And that is the question that will shut the mouth of every sinner who believes he is saved by his works. Have you kept the law in all of its inflexibility, in all of its spirituality, in all of its truth, in all of its reflection of my character? That is the question that will come from the Almighty on that day. You are in reality treasuring up wrath, he says, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, he says in verse 5 and in verse 8, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey the, obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, as he has already told us is happening in chapter 1, verse 18. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to the moral man, all right, you think you're going to be justified by your works? Present your works, present them all. Present everything that you've done and let the searcher of hearts examine you thoroughly. It's like churning butter. The more you do, the thicker it gets and the worse your heart becomes. You need Christ. You need to believe and to repent to apprehend the mercy of God in Christ, because your works will not save you on that day when you stand before God's bar of infinite, eternal, inflexible justice. But then he says a fifth thing to the moral man who thinks that he can be saved by his work. And it is this. The standard of judgment is the light that you have. The standard of judgment is the light that you have. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law. What about the man who doesn't have the law of God? What about the man who doesn't have the Bible? What about the man even who hasn't heard the gospel? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And in verses 14 and 15, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the Apostle Paul says the standard of judgment is the light that you have on that day. Those of you who have the law will be judged by the standard of the law, but because all of you are created in the image of God, that law is stamped upon the heart. And it's interesting that he says the work of the law. What does that mean? It means the convicting power of the law. That's what it means. The work of the law in the conscience, the law that condemns. This already is at work, even in the hearts of those who do not have the written word of God in their hands. Now, verse 13 is totally hypothetical. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. There are no doers of the law when it comes to justification. Don't you see? That is precisely Paul's point. Verse 13 brings the moral man to despair of himself. Rely on works... And they must be perfect works. And there is none of us who has ever done a perfect work of righteousness. Again, Hodge says it very beautifully and powerfully. If men rely on works, they must have works. They must be doers of the law. They must satisfy its demands if they are to be justified by it. So here is the inflexible standard of God's law, and you must satisfy its every demand if you are to be justified by it. Now you work your way through the Ten Commandments, and you tell me if you can get past the first one without saying, I have broken the law of Almighty God. If men rely on works, they must have works. They must be doers of the law. They must satisfy its demands if they are to be justified by it. And the Apostle Paul lists the features of the judgment. He says in verse 6, everyone will be judged. He says in verse 11, it will be an impartial judgment. He says that it is certain that there will be no evasion. In verse 6, he will judge. He says in verse 16 that the Son will be the judge and that it will be on the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's return. The criterion, verse 13, the perfect law of God. And he also says, the heart will be examined. Not just the work that you present that others see as good, not just the work that you present and you've suppressed the truth and fooled yourself into thinking that it's acceptable before God. No, 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 no. The heart will be thoroughly examined. Verse 16, On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God will judge the secrets of men, the things which have escaped the knowledge of other people, those hidden deeds of the heart and of the life, which are the surest criterion of character. So Paul drives us from every refuge. That's what he's doing in chapter 1. That is what he is doing in chapter 2. He is driving us out of every hiding place, every refuge. He's smoking us out. And saying, if you rely on works, those works must be perfect works. And to anticipate where Paul is going, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, the only one perfect doer of the law and the only one who could pay the penalty of a broken law is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And at the judgment... The question will not be, are you a Jew? It will not be, are you a church member? Are you baptized? Have you had many privileges? Are you the graduate of a Christian school? Have you been good to people? The question will be, have you obeyed my law? Well, have you? I hope no one after hearing what Paul says, can say, I have. Is your trust in the one who did, who obeyed the law, and who paid the penalty on the cross? So when the question comes to me on that day, have you obeyed the law? My answer is, no, I have not. I have broken your law. In thought, in word, in deed, I have sadly not kept your law. But my trust is in Jesus Christ, my substitute, who obeyed the law for me and paid the penalty of my sins. So I say, to the one who has done this great and wonderful thing because it is an awesome consideration if I may use the words of Charles Hodge again. He who died for the sins of men is to sit in judgment upon sinners. This is a just ground of fear to those who reject his offered mercy and of confidence to those who trust in His righteousness. Which is it for you? Christ is coming again. He will sit on judgment, sit there upon His throne. Is this a ground of fear for you because you know your heart is not right with God? Or is it a ground of confidence because you know the one who will sit there is the one who died for you and who paid the price and who bore your judgment in your place. Which is it? May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.